a note about the notes before we start. If you look, if you look at the back of the notes, there's a really simplistic map of, uh, of locations pertinent to the book of Jonah. This is just because uh, some place names will be used tonight. And I don't know if you're like me, but whenever place names are used, if I don't know where they are, it's just like a blur when I'm hearing them. So wanted to give you a basic map of Jonah and some, some locations pertinent to that. So I'm not going to reference that, but if I'm talking and you hear a place name, it should be on there. Um, most of them, the basic place names are on there. Um, and if they're not, you can ask me at the end and I can try to tell you where it is um, on that map. But that should help kind of visualizing what's going on here, the movement of the book of Jonah. Um, so that being said, I'm going to pray for us and we're going to get started. And, and as you can see from the notes, we're going to be looking at the vast majority of, uh, of Jonah 1 today is what we're going to cover. We're going to try to do about a chapter each week. This is a four-week class, and so we'll be covering that in that order. So let me pray for us and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, As we look at the book of Jonah tonight, as we open up your word and study it, our desire is that this this wouldn't just be a time of of learning facts, learning information from your word, but that this would be a time of, of you teaching us by your spirit, us sitting at your feet and learning about you, learning about the world, learning about how you interact with people, learning about salvation. So teach us tonight by your spirit. As we were reminded this morning, stir up our affections. We want to leave this place loving you more. That's the goal as we look at Jonah 1. And so stir up our hearts to love you more. Stir up our hearts to love the folks around us more. Stir up our hearts to love outsiders more. People that are different than us, people that are scary to us, people that might be violent, stir up our hearts in that way, Lord. Help us to leave this place, change people. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, go ahead and open, uh, open your, your um, Bibles to Jonah. If, if you've not been in one of my classes before, occasionally I'll switch up how I do things, but I'm a creature of habit, and so typically how it works is um, I'll talk for about 45 minutes, um, and, uh, and, and just work through the text of, of Jonah 1, pull out some applications from Jonah 1, but we will have time at the end of the class for a few questions. And so if you think of things along the way, please jot those down. We'd love to interact with some of those questions, some of those comments, some of the things that might have struck you from Jonah um, while we're going through. Um, but that's kind of how, uh, how I do classes on Sunday evening, um, just to prepare you for that. But as, as we get into the book of Jonah, by way of introduction, if you don't know this already, the book of Jonah is nothing if not dramatic. This is a dramatic book. You've got a runaway prophet. You've got a massive storm whipped up by God himself that has seasoned sailors fearing for their lives. You've got this inexplicably giant fish swallowing a man alive and then keeping him alive inside of himself somehow for three days. You've got a psalm pinned from inside of that giant fish. You've got pagans and their animals wearing sackcloth, fasting after the worst sermon ever. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. And then you've got this prophet who's arguing with God about a plant. This is a dramatic book. And as you read it, it strikes you. 
in that way. The book of Jonah sticks in your mind for that reason. It's a really easy story to remember. Most people, if they're familiar with the Bible, know the story of Jonah and could recount it for that reason. My desire as we walk through the book of Jonah together for the next four weeks is that the book of Jonah would stick in our minds for another reason. Not just because this is a dramatic story. My desire is that the book of Jonah would stick in our minds because of the dramatic way it shows the glorious character of God. That that would be the drama of Jonah that we would be drawn toward. Specifically, the dramatic way that Jonah shows God's sovereignty in salvation. His supreme power and authority in salvation. That that would be the drama of Jonah that we're drawn to. And so Jonah has a dramatic story to tell, but that dramatic story really only serves as a backdrop to this dramatic display of God's glory and salvation. To put it another way, the most dramatic, earth-shattering, supernatural, mind-bending assertion of the book of Jonah has nothing to do with a storm or a fish or cows wearing sackcloth. It has nothing to do with that. The most dramatic assertion of the book of Jonah comes from the runaway prophet inside the belly of a giant fish when he says salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the most dramatic thing that's gonna happen in this book, the most dramatic thing that we're gonna be drawn to in the book of Jonah. And so that's the goal, that we would be drawn to Jonah for that reason. A little historical background on Jonah. He's a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of King Jeroboam II. Now, timelines are also helpful for me, so if you want to sketch out a timeline on your sheet, you can do that. But King Jeroboam II reigned from 782 to 753 B.C. 782 to 753 B.C. So if you're thinking through this, this is over 700 years before the birth of Jesus. That's when the events of Jonah are taking. And if you remember at this time in Israel's history, The kingdom of Israel had split into two kingdoms. You've got the southern kingdom made up of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. It's got its capital in Jerusalem. The descendants of David are on the throne. But then you've also got a northern kingdom. The other 10 tribes, they've got these other kings reigning up there and their capital is in Samaria. That's where Jonah is doing his ministry. Probably in the city of Samaria, definitely in the northern kingdom of Israel. And we know this from the only other place in the Bible that Jonah's mentioned. I don't know if I knew this before doing this class on Jonah, but Jonah is mentioned somewhere outside the book of Jonah. It's in 2 Kings 14, verse 25. 2 Kings 14, 25. And it says this, Jeroboam II restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who is from Gath-Hefer. So in this passage in 2 Kings, Jonah has accurately prophesied to Jeroboam II, who wasn't a very good king, by the way, that the borders of Israel are going to expand. And that actually happened. Jonah is a faithful prophet. We also learn from 2 Kings 14 that Jonah is from a town west of the Sea of Galilee called Gath-Hefer. And we learn that his dad's name is Amittai. We learn the same thing in the first couple of verses of Jonah. But other than these few bits of information, we know almost nothing about Jonah himself. His character is a mystery. In fact, we don't even know if Jonah is the person who wrote this book. The book of Jonah gives no indication about authorship, only that the person that wrote this book had intimate knowledge of Jonah's story. We don't know if that was Jonah, one of his disciples, somebody down the road. 
what we can tell from the book of Jonah is why it was written. And this is really important, why it was written. Now, certainly Jonah is meant to be a historical account of a very remarkable story. And some of the closest parallels that you might find to this are in First and Second Kings. If you look at the stories of Elijah and Elisha, very similar narrative to what you're gonna find in the book of Jonah. But the author's purpose in writing this book isn't merely historical. And this is a big point. The author of Jonah is writing history in such a way that it teaches a lesson or many lessons. So Jonah would be called didactic history, history that teaches. What I want us to see is the book of Jonah isn't just a bare statement of facts. Jonah went here on this date and did this thing. Then he went here on this date and did this thing. It's a historical account, but it instructs readers about the nature of God and his interaction with the world. And the book of Jonah does this by wrestling with a particular question about God. Now, many of us are familiar with portions of the Bible that wrestle with God's justice. We had a a series here uh, a little while ago on the book of Job, and Job might be the most famous book in the Bible for wrestling with God's justice. It's this extended conversation that wrestles with the question, if God is just, why do bad things happen to good people? That's simplifying it. But it's this wrestling with God's justice. Well, the book of Jonah also wrestles with God's justice, but it comes at it from a different angle. It isn't concerned with bad things happening to good people. Jonah's concerned with the best possible things happening to the worst possible people the best possible things happening to the worst possible people. Specifically, Jonah's wrestling with this question. If God is just, how can he be gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to evil, wicked, violent men? If God is just, how can he do that? How can God do this? Where's his justice? Jonah's wrestling with that throughout the book. And read correctly, the book of Jonah is an extremely penetrating book. It's a book that cuts straight to our hearts. If we read Jonah in such a way that it's just a nice children's story, the biggest questions that we have to wrestle with are, did God really provide a giant fish to swallow this prophet? And could Jonah have really stayed alive for three days inside of this fish? Those are the biggest questions that we come away with. But if those are the biggest questions we leave Jonah with, then we haven't read Jonah correctly. We're asking the wrong questions if those are the questions we're leaving the book of Jonah with. And to clear up any possible misconception at the very start of this class, I think the book of Jonah is intended to be read as history. If you read this account, it's not parable. This is a historical account. I believe this is an accurate account of extraordinary supernatural things God did to one of his prophets. It is history, but it's also more than that. I want us to move beyond the place of only accepting this book as history. Because the book of Jonah is meant to be more than just a deep dive into the Mediterranean Sea, examining whether these extraordinary things could have happened or not. We have our our eyeglass out, examining the scientific evidence of this, and that's not what Jonah is trying to do. The book of Jonah is meant to be a deep dive inside the human heart, dredging up some of the ugliest parts of our sin nature. It's meant to be a deep dive into God's justice and grace and mercy, exploring how could God possibly save wretches like us? How could he do it and still be just? Along those two lines, 
diving into the human heart, diving into God's justice and grace and mercy, I think the book of Jonah has two really helpful uses for us today. And over the next four weeks, as as we examine the book of Jonah together and apply it to our lives, you're gonna see these uses cropping up again and again. And the first use of Jonah that I wanna suggest to you is the use of the book of Jonah as a mirror. As we walk through the book of Jonah together, we are frequently gonna pause. We're gonna hold this book up in front of us and examine our own lives carefully. In the book of Jonah, we're gonna see a reflection of ourselves as we really are, and I'm gonna warn you ahead of time, it's not very flattering. Jonah's faults and his flaws are on full display in this book, and he's not a biblical character that many people try to emulate, try to follow in the footsteps of Jonah by fleeing from the Lord as hard as they possibly can. But in Jonah's sinfulness, he is a biblical character we can relate to. We can see ourselves in his faults, in his flaws, in his incorrect thinking about God. And so the challenge is, as we walk through this book, let's not be quick to apply this to other people. Man, this person really needs to hear Jonah 1 because they look exactly like Jonah. Let's be very quick to look at ourselves first. That as we study this book, we would do it as those who are wise. Not walking away from a mirror, forgetting what we look like, no matter how unflattering the reflection is, we need to see it clearly. That's the first use. The book of Jonah is a mirror. The second use of the book of Jonah is a dark glass through which we see Jesus. A dark glass through which we see Jesus. Not only are we gonna hold the book of Jonah in front of ourselves as a mirror, we're also going to look through the book of Jonah like we're looking through a dark glass. And as we look through, we're gonna see dark outlines. We're gonna see shadows. We're not gonna see a lot of detail, not a lot of clarity, but we are going to see the shape of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in this book. And as unflattering of a character as Jonah often is in this book, the New Testament makes clear that in some ways, Jonah is a type of Christ. And we need to wrestle with that. What does that mean? How does Jonah point us forward to Jesus? How is it that over 700 years before Jesus actually arrives on the scene, that in some small ways, Jonah is preparing God's people for their savior? How's he doing that? We're gonna be wrestling with that in this class. There's a lot more that could be said by way of introduction to this book, but I think those are some, some really solid things for us to hang on to as we get into the text of Jonah itself. And so uh, I mentioned this before, but if you all have questions um, about the background of Jonah, about the historical context of Jonah, about things that we're gonna be talking about as we go through chapter one tonight, please jot them down. Love to address as many questions as we can at the end. Um, But yeah, feel free to write those down. We're gonna get into the text itself now. Um, but would love to address those questions at the end. Jonah 1.1 starts this way. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee, to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now the wording of this first verse of the book of Jonah is standard stuff. 
You could work your way through the Old Testament, this, the word of the Lord came to such and such saying, this is used 112 times in the Old Testament of God's word coming to a prophet. This is the standard formula for that. God's word coming to a prophet, this is how you say it in the Old Testament. And if you look at the content of God's call on Jonah, it's not really difficult to understand what God's saying to him. God basically says, get up, go to, jo- go to Nineveh. You probably know it. It's a pretty important city. I want you to call out against it. Their evil deeds haven't escaped my notice and I want them to know it. I want the Ninevites to know that I know they're doing bad stuff. Go tell them. The people that Jonah's called to prophesy to are the Ninevites. If you need to refer to your map, you can. Nineveh is one of the great cities of the Assyrian Empire located on the bank of the Tigris River. And to give a frame of reference, that'd be in northern Iraq today. And in Jonah's day, the Assyrian Empire is a major world power. Just a few decades after the time of Jonah, 721 BC, the Assyrian Empire comes into the northern kingdom of Israel, captures Samaria, and leads away 30,000 captives. This is a powerful empire that eventually sweeps away Jonah's country. And from what we know historically, the fact that God calls out their evil isn't really surprising. Assyrians were known for their brutality and their violence towards outsiders. You can see just a small glimpse of this. We're at the beginning of the Assyrian Empire coming on the scene. A hundred years later, after the time of Jonah, the prophet Nahum also cries against the Assyrian Empire. This is at the end of their reign. He says this in Nahum chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Nahum 3, 18 and 19. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. Your empire is coming to an end. That's what Nahum's saying. And then he says this. How do the nations respond? All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? The Assyrians had such a bad name in this part of the world. When their empire crumbles, everybody is throwing a party. Everybody's excited about this happen. And this is the same mindset that Jonah would have had a hundred years before this, looking at these Assyrians just coming on the scene, knowing their brutality. These are the people God is calling Jonah to go and call against. And in light of this fact, Jonah's response to the call shouldn't really come as a surprise to us. But it's still notable of all 112 times this formula is used, the word of the Lord came to such and such saying, of all 112 times in the Old Testament, this is the only time the prophet responds in this way. God calls Jonah to get up and go to Nineveh. Jonah gets up and goes, but he goes in the opposite direction. Same verbs are used, but he's going the other way. Instead of heading north and east to Nineveh, Jonah heads south and west to Joppa. Opposite directions. He books a ticket on a ship heading due west to the city of Tarshish. As best as we know, this is in southern Spain. That is a long way in the ancient world. That's a long way in the modern world. That's opposite ends of the Mediterranean. In Jonah's day, this is booking a passage to the edge of the known world. That's where I'm headed. That's where I want to go. Jonah's getting out of Dodge. And the reason for Jonah's flight is stated twice in these three verses. Now, obviously, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. We're going to get into the reasons for that in chapter 4. But twice here we're told Jonah is fleeing the presence of the Lord. 
That's what he's doing. That's why he's running. He's getting away from God or trying to. He's running away from this land and this people who are associated with the God who's called him on this seemingly crazy mission. He wants to get out of there. And it seems weird to us. Why would your, your reaction be to flee? Isn't God everywhere? That's kind of weird. But when we think about ourselves and how we try to cement ourselves in sin sometimes, this makes sense. I've seen a pattern in my life when I want to cement myself in disobedient behavior towards the Lord, I get away from God's people and I get away from the church. I get away from from this community that's going to encourage me and I get away from, from the church that's so associated with God's presence that I'm going to feel this burden to obey. Jonah's wanting to get away from that. Get out of God's land, get away from God's people. I'm going to Tarshish. It continues in verse four. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots And the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? And where do you come from? What's your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now, in this section of Jonah 1, the tension is palpable. You can imagine the wind starting to pick up on the open sea. You can picture the waves growing and growing until they begin to crash over the sides of the ship and the ships riding lower and lower in the water. You can hear the hole creaking and groaning from the pounding of the waves. This is the type of storm that makes professional sailors fear for their lives. This is the type of storm that makes traders forget about any notion of profiting from their journey as they start dumping cargo overboard to try to lighten the ship so that they might save their lives. This is a serious storm. But this storm isn't just a stroke of bad luck for Jonah's ship. It isn't just a crazy coincidence that their journey is halted by this bad storm. And as readers of the book of Jonah, we get to take a peek behind the curtain at what's going on. We get to see where this storm really comes from. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Now in Jonah's culture, it would have been common to attribute a storm like this to a higher power. That's why you see all the sailors crying out to their gods. They're hoping that one of their gods will be able to to calm this storm enough that they might be able to survive. But there's a problem. It's the Lord who has hurled this storm And the Lord is the only one who's actually capable of calming this storm. They can call out to their deaf and dumb idols all they want and they're not going to be saved. The further problem is the only worshiper of the Lord on board this ship that we know of isn't on deck with everybody else. He isn't up terrified out of his mind, fighting to keep the ship afloat, pleading with the Lord to calm the storm down. 
the only worshiper of the Lord on board this ship that we know of is the runaway prophet Jonah. And he's down below in the inner part of the ship and he is fast asleep. He's out. And I actually think, I would argue this, one of the most miraculous things recorded in the book of Jonah is he is sleeping through this storm. I don't know how this is possible. I would have been out of my mind scared. You would have think something would wake him up. The rocking of the ship, the creaking of the hull, the sailors coming down below to unload the cargo, nothing. Jonah's out. It takes the captain of the ship coming down, waking Jonah up, informing him of the seriousness of this situation that Jonah finally gets out of his nap. And apparently, none of the gods of the sailors had responded to their cries for help. So the captain of the ship wakes Jonah up in the hopes that maybe Jonah's God will give a thought to these sailors and maybe Jonah's God will save them. Maybe if Jonah calls out to his God, their lives will be spared. But the sailors are also convinced the storm is directed at somebody particular on this voyage. There's not just a God responsible for it, there's a reason behind this storm. And so the sailors do the only logical thing to try and figure out who has brought this catastrophe on them. On the pitching and rolling deck of this storm-tossed ship, waves crashing over the side, they get their dice out. And they try to figure out that way who's responsible for this storm. And the scene, at least to me, appears comical. These sailors are on the deck of the ship. Their ship's going down and they're rolling lots trying to figure out who's responsible for this thing. But they desperately want to know who's responsible and how do we get out of this predicament. And so they're in their thinking, lots could be used in, in this situation to try and to determine the God's opinion on this matter. And we aren't exactly sure how lots were used. The best explanation I found, this is a possibility, is there were two dice that alternated light and dark sides. This has always confused me. This is why I'm throwing this in. So if they throw the dice and two dark sides come up, the answer is no. If they throw the dice and two light sides come up, the answer is yes. If they throw the dice and they're alternating dark and light, it's roll again. And so this way, they've gone through everybody on board And the lots show that Jonah is at fault. And as strange as this might seem to us, God actually makes use of the dice in this instance to show who's to blame for this storm. Now, I'm not recommending you go home and try to determine God's will by rolling dice. I would not recommend that. All I'm saying is that in Jonah 1, God does use this to point out who's at fault for this storm, why this storm is happening. And I think it's a good check on us to to not only see God's sovereignty and salvation, but God's sovereignty over creation in Jonah 1. God has whipped up this massive storm, and we're going to see him still this storm in a little bit. He's in control over something as big as the wind and the storm on the sea, but he's also sovereign over something as small as the roll of the dice. He's in control of everything. And God uses both of these things, the big and the seemingly small, to shift all attention on board this ship that is going down rapidly, squarely onto Jonah, his runaway prophet. And the the sailors start slinging questions in rapid succession at Jonah. Who's responsible for this terrible storm? What do you do for a living? Where do you come from? What country's on your passport? What's your ethnic background? And Jonah shoots straight with these sailors. Jonah's a Hebrew one of the people groups that lived in the land of Palestine. And because he's a Hebrew, he fears the Lord, Yahweh. And Yahweh is a really important God, the God of heaven, the God who made not only the sea, but also the dry land. 
In this crazy scenario, Jonah actually makes a really clear presentation of the one true religion and the one true God. Now, there's not gonna, you're not going to hear many flattering things out of my mouth about Jonah during this class. So you can take note of this. This is an instance where I think Jonah did it right. In a short, to-the-point way, Jonah offers a pretty good representation of the one true religion and the one true God. Now, it's not clear exactly what Jonah communicating this to a pagan audience would have had, like what that would have meant for them. But you actually find something very similar to this in the New Testament when Paul is in the midst of a group of pagans in Acts 17. If you look at Acts 17, 22 to 24, Paul starts his sermon this way. Acts 17, 22 to 24. It says, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Jonah could have said that on board the ship. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. There's parallels there. This is how Paul's speaking into a pagan environment. Jonah's doing something very similar. So good for Jonah on this. (laughs) But at whatever level these sailors believe in what Jonah is saying, this isn't reassuring to them at all. As much as this is a great confession of Jonah's faith, the sailors have to be thinking something like this. Okay, Jonah, let me get this straight. You worship Yahweh, who you are claiming to be a really important God, the God who made both the sea and the dry land, and you're running away from his presence. That's what you've told us. So you decide to run away from the God who made the sea by hopping on a boat and heading out into the middle of the Mediterranean. What are you thinking? They were scared at the beginning of the storm. They are freaking out now. That's a rough translation of exceedingly afraid. They're freaking out, and understandably so. The storm is, is showing no sign of slowing down, and the guy whose God is responsible for the storm has just admitted, oh yeah, this is who I believe in, and this is who's causing the storm. I'm running away from him. This is not reassuring to the sailors. Verse 11, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. but They couldn't. The sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. It's not just that this storm is continuing on. The ship continues to sink. This storm is getting worse and worse Jonah and the sailors can't just try to ride this one out. Something has to happen. Jonah's the one who placed the sailors in this predicament, and the sailors are hoping that he'll have some idea about getting them out of this predicament. What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? And however slight in there, there's some indication in the sailor's question that a punishment is being called for. 
Jonah worships a very powerful God who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah is attempting, for whatever reason, to try to run away from the presence of that God. And based on the ferocity of this storm, Jonah's God isn't very happy with Jonah's decision to run. Something must happen to Jonah so that Jonah's God will be appeased. That's the thinking that's happening here. And Jonah seems to agree with the sailors. And we don't know if this is Jonah resigning himself to fate or if Jonah sees being tossed overboard almost certainly to his death as the only way that he can continue to run from the Lord or if Jonah is nobly hoping to exchange his life for the sailor's life or if Jonah receives some word from the Lord telling him to do this. We don't know what Jonah's thinking, but Jonah's response is, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. The sailors had asked Jonah what they should do so that the sea would quiet down. They weren't expecting this. They weren't thinking Jonah was going to say, pick me up and throw me overboard and you guys would be great. And when they're forced between, uh, between signing Jonah's death warrant or trying to go another round with this storm, they decide to go another round with this storm to see if possible they could row through this thing. So in this last ditch effort, everybody grabs their oars and goes for it and they don't get far at all. Again, the storm worsens, the sailors are broken. In this battle between this hardened group of sailors and the God who made the seas, God wins. They don't have a shot. The only option the sailors are left with is obey the word of the Lord through this runaway runaway prophet. The sailors resolve to throw Jonah into the sea just as he said. Before they do, they call out to God, kind of a last-ditch attempt. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And with that, kind of as a last rites, they pick Jonah up and hurl him over the side into the raging sea. And lo and behold, the winds died down, the storm subsided, the sea ceased from its raging, just like Jonah said. And this section of Jonah ends with the prophet sinking below the waves of the storm-tossed Mediterranean. We're going to pick up on Jonah's story next week. But the author of Jonah also wants to clue the readers in on how things turned out for these sailors. This group of sailors, if you're getting in their mind, was probably expecting a routine cargo run west. Hey, we're taking this, this routine trip to Tarshish. They had no idea that they'd be joined on their journey by a runaway prophet or that the prophet's God would be so eager to get the prophet's attention that he would throw this massive storm at their ship. They probably couldn't even imagine they'd end up throwing a man overboard who they hardly knew to try and attempt to save their ship and their lives. And I'm sure they weren't ready for their entire lives to to be changed based on what happened out on the water, by what they saw and what they heard. But we're told the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, if we come to the book of Jonah here and ask the the modern question, did all of these sailors get saved because of what happened? Or is this saying that all the sailors became believers? We're kind of asking a question foreign to the text a little bit. What we know from the book of Jonah is these sailors heard about the one true God, the God of Israel who dwells in heaven and who made the sea and the dry land, These sailors experienced his power over the wind and the waves, not only to stir up a storm, but to miraculously stop it. These sailors heard a word of prophecy from one of God's prophets and saw it fulfilled in front of their eyes. And these sailors responded in a way that's appropriate and pleasing to the Lord. 
They feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord. They made vows. I can't say whether all these guys are saved or became believers or not. The text isn't really bringing that up. What we know is, by God's grace, these pagan sailors had an encounter with the one true God and had an opportunity to respond to it. And by what we can tell, they responded appropriately. That is the end of Jonah chapter one. Was that dramatic enough for you? Enough going on? As a narrative, Jonah takes the drama dial and dials it up to 11. We're gonna see this in chapter after chapter after chapter in Jonah. It is dramatic. It is an intense story. But as we close tonight, we come to the really important task of asking, so what? We come to the really important task of asking, what does Jonah 1 mean for my life? What does Jonah 1 show me about myself? What does Jonah 1 show me about God? We come to the important task of holding this book up in front of us like a mirror, seeing our reflection in it and not forgetting what we look like. The important task of holding this book up in front of us like a dark glass, a dark glass through which we get precious glimpses of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it wouldn't be good for us to end before doing those things. The first thing I wanna look at is how Jonah shows us the prophet who loves his enemies. Think carefully back to the very beginning of our time together today about Jonah's call at the beginning of this chapter and his response to that call. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Like so many other times in the Old Testament, God's word comes to one of his prophets. God has something he wants his prophet to do, and God has a message for him to proclaim. And as we talked about, Jonah's call wasn't easy. I don't want to make light of that. It would have been difficult enough in this time period to minister in Israel, much less to go abroad to one of Israel's enemies and try to minister. Jonah's called to Nineveh, this great city in Assyria, Assyria that was known for its violence and brutality to other nations. Jonah was called to a hostile people to proclaim God's word. Most likely in Jonah's mind, he had rejection and suffering and violence ahead of him. And Jonah ran as hard and as fast as he could in the opposite direction. He didn't want any part of it. And believe it or not, as we look at Jonah's disobedience here, it's in this disobedience that we catch a glimpse of a shadow, a dark outline of Jesus. The dark outline comes alive as we look at Jesus' life recorded for us in the gospel I have good news for you. We have a prophet who didn't flee from going to his enemies. I have good news for you. We have a prophet who proclaimed boldly God's word of repentance and belief in a hostile world. I have good news for you. We have a prophet who set his face toward rejection and suffering and violence for us. We catch a really small glimpse of that in Jonah. The prophet that will go. Now, this isn't intended to heap scorn on Jonah or to make light of his understandable wrestlings with God's difficult call on his life. This is intended to bring out in stark relief the glorious character of our Savior. We have a prophet who loves his enemies, a prophet who loves us, 
And praise be to God that we do because we have no hope apart from that. We're Nineveh in this story. We need God's word to come to us. No hope apart from Jesus, his willingness to enter into the muck and the mire that is our fallen world and our fallen lives, his willingness to proclaim repentance and belief to us, his willingness to be rejected and suffer and die for us. He's willing to do that. Romans 5, starting in verse 6 says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies, that's who Jesus came to save. That's who he set his face toward, his mission to the earth. And praise God for this dramatic pointer to Jesus' love for us. Not trying to throw Jonah under the bus, but it serves as a stark contrast to the love of our Savior for us that he desires for us to be saved. A question that we're going to be wrestling with as we move forward in the book of Jonah a question that holds this book in front of us and makes us face ourselves in the mirror, do I love my enemies? Do I want my enemies to be saved? Do I love my enemies and do I want them to be saved? It's easy to address this question from a like, oh, family and friends, definitely want them saved, definitely want them to be brought into the kingdom. Even people that I might not agree with a little bit, yes, definitely, but enemies, We're going to be unpacking what that looks like. But Jesus' love for weak, ungodly, sinful enemies is the pattern that we're supposed to have of loving others. As we see Jonah's callousness, his apparent callousness to Nineveh, he doesn't want them to be saved. We shouldn't be shaking our heads. We should be looking in the mirror and saying, How am I doing this? Who don't I want to be saved? Do I see my own attitudes reflected in that? The second thing that I, that I want us to think on is Jonah 1 not only points us to a prophet who loves his enemies in a dramatic way, equally as dramatic, Jonah 1 shows us that we serve a God of means. And I want to unpack what that means. We serve a God of means It's natural to focus on Jonah in this first chapter, the great lengths that God goes to to get Jonah back on track so that he can go to Nineveh. That's his mission. That's what we focus on. But have you ever thought about Jonah 1 from the perspective of these sailors? When we first meet this rough and tumble crew in verse 5, a massive storm is bearing down on them. They're calling out to every god they can think of to save them. This is pragmatism at its finest or at its worst. These are guys are calling out to whatever and whoever might save them. That's how we're introduced to these sailors. But when they leave our story, 11 verses later, verse 16, they fear the Lord exceedingly. They offer a sacrifice to the Lord. They make vows. What happened? What's the difference? 
Paul, tell you what happened. God used extraordinary means to proclaim his character to these ordinary, undeserving pagan men. He used extraordinary means to proclaim his own nature to these guys who weren't even expecting it or probably wanting it. Think about this. If these guys are truly converted, and I I know that's a question, I think Jonah 1 makes a strong case that, that this is a possibility. These guys have genuinely been converted to the true religion. Think about their testimony in modern terms. How did you get saved? Let's bring you up in front of the church. Sailor John, let's bring you up here. Why don't you talk about how you got saved well, uh, funny story, actually. Um, I was a professional sailor, got on a boat in Joppa, thought it was a routine cargo run heading to Tarshish, and it, and it goes on from there. Let me tell you about a God who goes to incredible lengths and will employ unbelievable means to extend his grace to people. That's what Jonah 1 is showing us. For these sailors, God placed a runaway prophet on board their ship, whipped up an incredible storm, controlled the outcome of dice, had a prophet declare God's character in the midst of this storm. The prophet prophesied about how the storm would stop, and then he did it all for these sailors to watch. They were changed by this. Yes, God was doing that to get Jonah back on track. He was also changing the lives of these sailors, using whatever means needed to get their attention. What lengths God went to that these sailors would see his character. Extraordinary lengths. And the question for us is, what lengths did God go to that you would be saved? What extraordinary lengths did God go to that you would be saved? What extraordinary means did he use to bring you into his kingdom to make you one of his people? Don't follow the deception that thinks you have a boring testimony. Those don't exist. God used extraordinary means to welcome you into his kingdom. I started my seminary courses this summer, um, had a week-long intensive class on evangelism. It was a great first class to be in. Um, A little bit long. We were in class nine to four, Monday to Friday. Um, But one of the days, our, our professor in this evangelism class had everybody in the room share their testimony. So we went around the room. We probably had a minute to share. And he just said, just, just real, real short, tell me how you were saved and how God continues to save you. What's he doing in your life? To share that with me. And with each person, as, as we went around the room, the professor would point out a few things in their testimony. Just saying, notice what the Lord did here. How incredible is it that the Lord did this in your life? Have you ever thought about that? That's incredible. And I, I think of my own life, and, and just briefly I'll share about myself. I have would, what would, for, from the outside would be considered a boring testimony. I was raised in a Christian home, have gone to church my entire life, and the Lord has been working in my life for as long as I can possibly remember. But the more I think about my story and every person that God has brought into my life as a means of grace to encourage me in salvation, it's unbelievable what he's done in my life that I would be saved completely by his grace, completely undeserved. He has placed so many people around me. He has used extraordinary means that I would be saved, that I would see his grace and respond to it. We serve a God of means. What means has God used to save you? Can you sit down this week with another believer and share your testimony? 
Say, you know what? I just want to tell you how the Lord saved me and how he's continuing to save me, what he's doing in my life, sharpening me, sanctifying me, making me more and more like, like I look like one of his kids. Can you ask that believer that you're sitting down to, with to say, you know what? Just listen carefully to my testimony. Pick out a few points and just say, man, it's cool that God worked in your life in this way. Have you ever thought about how cool that is that God did this? That he brought this person into your life? That this event happened in your life that was going to sharpen you? With the desire that you would be awed and humbled by the work that God has done in your life and the work that he continues to do in your life that you would be saved. We serve a God of means. Jonah 1 does this very dramatically with these sailors. The lengths God went to to present himself Jonah 1 is a dramatic, dramatic story. My prayer as we close tonight, as much as we are struck by this dramatic story, that more than that, we would be struck by the dramatic picture that Jonah 1 sketches of this prophet who loves his enemies. The dramatic picture that Jonah 1 sketches of the God who uses extraordinary means to save people. And we're gonna see over the next few chapters just how undeserving people can be including us. As we look at Jonah 1, truly we have to say salvation belongs to the Lord. Praise God. Let's pray and uh, we'll have some time for questions. Heavenly Father, we're, we're grateful for your grace in just a, a humbling reminder of what you've done for us through Jesus that you've sent to us the prophet that loves his enemies, enough that he was willing to be betrayed and falsely accused and mocked and beaten and crucified for us. Thank you as well that he rose from the dead three days later that we could have life in him. Remind us this week how extraordinary you are in saving us. That we would not look at it as a vanilla, plain story, nothing out of the ordinary. Open our eyes to see how you have worked in our lives. People you have brought around us to speak truth into our lives, to point us to your word, to call us to repentance especially for that work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, making us new people, that we would be born again. Stir up our affections and our love for you as we see that salvation belongs to you. Amen.